0: figure out where that is in my book because it is not in the
1: 176 list. yeah it's yeah. oh it had a chapter number in part two i can just tell you that 16 chapter 16 because 15 is where she's like the Roy needs to do this to me i gotta get out of here
0: oh yeah yeah okay she says okay i got you so it's let's what? record and then uh let's set up patreon i
1: just said already recording, because we were talking about stuff, and I was like, this is good stuff, I don't want to miss any of it. Part of the stuff we just recorded will end up being part of the Culled Open, I'm sure, for this episode.
0: Welcome to First Time Through.
1: New eyes on Castle Rock, with your hosts,
0: Kim Payne,
1: and Otto Muller. Today we're going to talk about Stephen King's Misery, a book that some have been dying to read.
0: And today... We're going to bring you our first episode of a three-part series.
1: We're going to be discussing it in three parts, and this will be the first part of our Magnum opus.
0: We're reading Misery, and that he wrote Misery beginning in September 23rd of 1984. You know,
1: actually, real quick, though. This is a fun fact that I didn't know until you told me, but for anyone that's listening and you're new to the Stephen King world, if you turn to the back (laughs) page of pretty much any Stephen King book, on the very pretty much last line, it'll tell you when he started writing it, where he started writing it, and it'll also tell you where he finished it and when he finished it.
0: But don't um, read the text above it. Just yeah, look don't at the read dates
1: <laughs> don't read the back page, but it is it's really interesting just to know like when in his life he was making it.
0: Because I think that no, I know that what's going on in his world really. Contributes to what and how he's writing. Oh yeah, especially Um, for
1: this book. Like it's just so like this is one of the biggest works of metafiction that I've ever read before. Just like the constant referential like nature of itself is really fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I this this definitely in my top five favorite Stephen King books. I probably will say that in every single episode
1: because (laughs) we'll keep a list,
0: except for. The Tommy knockers. um I want
1: you to know I'm starting a list right now of your top five. You do it. King <laughs> you
0: do it. Um, so, anyway, uh, Lovell, Maine, September 23rd, 1984, um, and finished in Bangor, uh, October 7th, 1986. Now my tale is told.
1: Tell us about why those places are important to Steve.
0: Yes, Lovell is their lake house. Um, and for you constant readers, that's where he was when he was involved in the accident with the drunk driver. And, ooh, foreshadow. Ooh, yeah. That's that's important later. You'll if you don't know that, that's really important later. And uh, Bangor is where he. That's his primary residence.
1: One's in Massachusetts, one in Maine, right? No, they're both in Maine. Both in Maine. Mm-hmm. Somebody really likes yeah. Maine.
0: Yeah. I guess you would say it's you its know, Maine you know, place. I forgot. I forgot, but, you know, Stephen King lived in Indiana for a while when he was a toddler. Really? I had no idea. Actually, I did know that, but I read that again recently and was like, oh, I forgot that. (laughs) Um,
1: Little connections. Yeah,
0: so. That's cool. Little connections. So, in case you guys don't know, Misery was actually originally slated to be a Bachman book. It was not actually supposed to be published under the Stephen King name at all but right before it came out he was outed um
1: wait is Bachman a pseudonym of Steve yeah I didn't know that
0: yeah so there are a handful of Bachman books out there that
1: I saw some actually that were in the Stephen King section when I was at the used bookstore and it really confused me because it was like oh, right before he died, Stephen King helped him finish this book. And I was like, oh, that's nice. But now I just know it's like, ah, his alter ego died. Yes, his (laughs) alter
0: ego got outed, so he put him to rest. Uh, So anyway, this book wasn't even supposed to be published in his name, but of course it is. And it was actually part of a two-book contract, and the books were slated to come out about the same time, which is why he wanted to have it under his alternate name
1: misery start was started to be written in maine i mean probably most of it's all written in maine but in 84 finished it two years later so it took him about two years to finish write edit and submit and finally get this book published um do you think that there is like really like any like one big piece of information about steve's life now that i've read the whole book And I'm like, I think that if you keep it as mysterious as possible, it'd be more fun for everyone. Mm -hmm. But is there, like, one thing that you want me to, like, know right this second as we start to, like, break it down? Yeah. What?
0: Stephen King was in the throes of a really serious cocaine addiction oh so while he, he was writing this book, so he really gets the addiction <coughs>
1: aspect of paul
0: absolutely okay absolutely
1: well that's really that does honestly though also like <coughs> does not surprise me with this book mm-hmm. it, it's a little interesting that he has such an intense cocaine addiction through it because it's a very slow-moving novel mm-hmm. like it's not by any means probably like anything that i would call fast
0: my theory is now this is strictly theory i have absolutely no evidence (laughs) anywhere to back back this up my theory is stephen king has at least a touch of adhd so the stimulant actually caused him to be more focused
1: oh honestly yeah that makes sense Mm -hmm. a lot of sense or at
0: least the AD part you know the 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 activity part because i i feel like His in living in his brain would be really hard, (laughs) and I I think that maybe that the stimulant slowed those thoughts down. I
1: definitely don't feel like you're writing three to twelve to a hundred books a year, (laughs) unless you have a couple of thoughts coming through your brain at a thousand miles an hour at all times.
0: Absolutely, that makes sense to me. Absolutely, yeah. So okay. Anyway,
1: I know that's good to know. Yeah. Um. Okay. So misery then. Yes. So. As you open the book, it says, uh, this is for Stephanie and Jim Leonard, who know why. Boy, do they. And then it says, Goddess Africa. So it just immediately puts you in that, like, this is an important, I don't know. If, oh, yeah, okay. Kim and I have different versions. So mm-hmm. as we're going through my paperback version, she's going through her first edition, hardcover edition. <laughs> um, we are comparing the book as well. Mm-hmm. And then it has some little... Uh, These are three doctors that helped me, like, make sure that things were medically accurate, which I think is very awesome that not only would he go through the trouble to, like, talk to them. I think, like, obviously, Mm -hmm. like, anyone that's going to write something based, like, with something like this, you have to talk to someone. And then it goes right into one with Annie and uh, a little Nietzsche quote. When you look into the abyss, the abyss also looks into you. And then we'll probably—I don't think we need to dissect any more of the book. I just really wanted to like right. show like right. the progression of it. Absolutely. And then if you've never read a Stephen King book before, and this might be your first experience, like mine was, you'll notice that uh, apparently two sentences can be considered a chapter. So for, get prepared for a lot of breaks. It's honestly my least favorite quality of Stephen King's writing, if I'm being honest. And I get that like it makes it really easy to transfer transition into a movie, like mm-hmm. we talked about. But it also like. Really, like, makes it easy to popcorn read it. It really makes it easy for you to be like, I'm going to read a chapter before bed. And you read a chapter and you're like, ah, satisfaction, I'm done. Mm -hmm. So I get why so many people like casually read Stephen King's books. But when you're like deep in the throes of like a three hour reading binge and you're sitting there and you're like, what's going to happen next? And all of a sudden it's a chapter break, it just ruins the narrative for me a little bit.
0: See, and I, that's one of the things I've always really enjoyed about Mm -hmm. his writing. Yeah. Because it's, it's like a scene change to me.
1: No, and I really like, and it,
0: it just really I've oh, I mean I it's probably because I've been reading Stephen King for uh, more years than I care to admit, thirty seven years. Um, so I've yeah. been so that's a writing style that I've always read. Grew up with that. It's, I grew style. up with that, and so. Um,
1: well, I think it's interesting though too, because I did grow up with more like young adult, like Harry Potter's, Hunger Games, you know, the whatevers. And they're more. They don't have those scene breaks. They transition through words, like especially in Harry Potter. I'm thinking of how there's never a moment where it's like a scene transition like that. It's always like three weeks later, nothing had really right, been happening, right. and because of that, blah and, blah 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 blah. And like so, they, the anonymous author that wrote those books, would just essentially use like those chapter breaks. But in, as words.
0: As words. And I
1: think that that's as something words. I got used to. Right. And I think that that's the thing, though, about Stephen King's writing, is it makes it almost... Like, I think that's what makes this such so easy to turn into a play, for example.
0: Absolutely. is because
1: it's like, you don't have to worry about, like, getting a scene transition through words. It's like, scene transition time.
0: Yes, so, absolutely. It makes sense. And, and I also feel like that with this book in particular, Paul's thoughts are so disjointed that the rapid scene changes chapter breaks are important to show how disjointed his thoughts are especially at the beginning because if you noticed as you went through they started they got longer, longer. because and i really do think mm-hmm. that that's why they're it's segmented like it is yeah. is to portray how disjointed his thoughts were because she had him so doped up Oh, yeah. And, and you know, I, I don't know if any of you have ever had a, an alcohol blackout, a drug blackout. Oh, raise
1: your hands.
0: Yes. And that's what I, I feel like that's why the, the short one and two sentence things are important because... You may remember one thing that happened, but you don't. But everything around it's real hazy.
1: It's like that John Mulaney story he tells, and he's like, "And then I thought I'd never climbed a fence that high, and then I woke up in my bed,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's just you just missed the end of that story." And I think right. like that is actually a really good point that I hadn't even really noticed is there's definitely moments too where like Paul's brain just stops thinking, and it's like, "Yep, that's the next part." Yeah. So we start off right. I think the first chapter is actually probably one of my favorite chapters, if I'm being honest. There's this first chapter, and then it's like chapter 32 in the third part, but they're very, they're almost parallels, and mm-hmm. it's really interesting to see it. Um, it's actually, I think it's literally written the same, but um, you're umber one fan. I still don't know what that is or what it could mean. You're umber one, oh, you're a number one fan. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Number one, your number one fan.
0: Yeah.
1: So that must have been like, I imagine then that that's just Annie like caressing his cheek. Mm-hmm. Oh, number one fan. So basically, what happens is we drop into this world and we are introduced to Paul Sheldon, who is essentially uh, laying just absolutely demolished uh, from the waist down in this uh, bed. And he wakes up to this woman, and he, she tells him that her name is Annie, and that she is his number one fan. Um, and from that point on, we really it just all starts to divulge who these people are and where they go from there. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out how I should recap it because part of me just wants to be like, "Here's the story so far," right. but I feel like.
0: But no, I don't. I don't want yeah. to do that either,
1: though. You know what I mean. But,
0: but our, but I think our readers, or I think our listeners are going to be. They're reading probably have this. already
1: like. I hope you guys have at least like read part of this book if you're listening right, to our podcast right. about the. I'm book hoping we're that writing.
0: you're listening to the promo, that you've listened to the promo, and know that this is what we're reading, so that you've read read it again.
1: We have a lot of hopes on you. Yes, a lot of hopes lot of are hope riding on, on you. you right now.
0: <laughs> so. Uh, spoilers <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh yeah i feel like we should it, be like if, spoilers if you've never read if misery. you've never
0: read misery stop here go read misery and come back because all the spoilers
1: mm-hmm. i think uh so it starts off with paul he's uh he has all of the pain and he has all of this stuff and i think one thing that's really fun is like probably like 20 pages in i'll see if i can find it um he literally like stephen king puts in here and he's like I'm, like, one of the smartest writers of all time. I write confusing thoughts in these disconjointed ways, blah, 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 blah. And then he uses that actual literary tactic, like, Mm -hmm. two or three pages before it. Yes. And so I think it's just really fun. Like, there's these moments of Stephen King just really, really enjoying his own writing and being really proud of himself. But I can't tell if that's a character Paul Sheldon thing or if it's stephen king in the throes of uh what he's been doing
0: Mm -hmm.
1: also like just being really proud of himself
0: right right yeah because you know there's there's a lot this book while it is like i said one of my favorites and it is really it's a lot of people's favorite um it is very meta, as you said I'll, previously, like, because for me too, is I, I feel like fiction. that he was really oh. struggling to deal with things that were going on in his personal life.
1: Oh, I was going to say, I think we should explain what meta is, like meta oh, and yeah, meta yeah. fiction. Yeah, um, yeah. So meta is the idea, the concept, I guess, that you would say, like that a character or a TV show or a movie references itself. So it's essentially like... uh, It's
0: very circular.
1: Circular, yeah, yeah. Very circular. It's like knowing that Stephen King is an author who is writing about an author, and that author is thinking about how good he is at writing, or how he likes to use this literary tactic. So when we talk about it being meta, it's because we know that that is actually coming from Stephen King's mind. And it's interesting that we have this writer talking about writing in a fictional book. Right like and it's not and i think it's really cool because it just really shows like a, a little inside of like what steve thinks about like writing and the writing process especially and it makes me think like is he the type of writer and i like i'm sure you might know this is he the type of writer to like go and lock himself up in a hotel in boulder to like do all that or is he more of the type to like stay at home in his porch and just like continue working
0: you know, I know that he writes every single day. Every day is what
1: you told me. Every
0: about. day. He takes and and I know that recently as he's gotten more closer to retirement age, um that he doesn't write as many days of the year, but I know that like when he was writing this, he would take a couple of days a year off. He took like his birthday off and New Years or something. So, he wrote at least for a little while every single day and um I think that 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 the writing is almost as much of an addiction as anything else. Oh yeah. Because it's just I, again we'll talk about living like, in his brain and all of these thoughts all the time. We've got they've gotta go somewhere. The, and boy am I glad bit. it comes to the books.
1: He talks later on about how like the only thing that is getting him out of his awful situation is writing, mm-hmm. and so it makes me think that, like, oh man, like even in the darkest of awful times, his creative energy, like even through this character of Paul Sheldon, is still helping him through these terrible situations.
0: Yeah. So I feel like, yeah, of yeah. course,
1: that's how Stephen King has to feel about writing too. Yeah. Like you know. Well,
0: and I feel like that that applies to a lot of artists in all genres. I feel like a lot of people create their art as a therapy
1: oh yeah so i was just thinking uh, like about annie a little bit because like our first introduction to her is like her obviously saying, I'm your number one fan now. And I, re- mm-hmm. <laughs> sure, I wish I would have realized that when I was like, eh.
0: but I mean, that's the whole point <laughs> though, is you're not supposed
1: to, is it's like this disconjointed, weird information.
0: Exactly. And, and that's something about reading it to yourself versus hearing, hearing it. it. out loud. When you said it out loud, you were like, oh, uh, duh, that's yep, the words. <laughs>
1: and then literally at the end of chapter two, she says, yes, that's, I'm your num- I'm your number one fan. And yep. it's like, oh, okay. That makes sense. Well, I think, like, also in the first two chapters, we learned something really, like, two really big things about Annie. One, we learned, you know, she is his biggest fan. Mm-hmm. But two, we learned that she almost accidentally killed him. Yes. So she is inexperienced. She doesn't truly know what she's doing. Mm-hmm. But she does have enough knowledge to unkill him. No. Yeah. To save him. Yeah. To make him not dead. Yes. So.
0: Yeah, she, she's knowledgeable but only to a degree. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and it makes me think that it's, it's an experience thing. Mm-hmm. And especially once we find out more about like what she's actually done as a nurse, like you realize right. like saving people hasn't been her goal. <laughs> Foreshadowing. <Foreshadowed. laughs>
0: Spoilers. Spoilers.
1: And then we find out we're in Colorado, which is important, of course, too, just because like, like whenever everybody thinks of Colorado, you think of, you know, sparse trees on the top of a mountain. You know, you think of those like classic like sunset pictures and the pictures and everything. You don't think of like Denver and the booming metropolises right. of that place. Right. Um,
0: no, you think of the isolation and the, the...
1: And especially knowing that the closest court is Boulder, which means that like they're probably more northern up in the Sidewinder mm-hmm. area. Absolutely. Like, has to be. So it's like even more like... I think the biggest place going up there is Fort Collins. And so it's like, you go just getting further and further up. You're like, ah, yeah. this is just less and less people.
0: Yeah. Stephen King has spent time in these areas. Steve has spent Steve. time in these areas. <laughs> Good old Steve. Uh, so this is some, somewhere he is familiar with, uh, which is mm-hmm. another, another thing that he uses. Almost all of his books are set in places where he is comfortable. And familiar.
1: That makes sense. Like, I mean, like, you don't write what you don't know, you write what you know. Absolutely. And, like, especially if you're gonna like it makes me think like generalization, but it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we know I mean we pretty much everybody's probably seen it. If you haven't, I hope you have. But like if one you're one of gonna these write, days he'll
0: read it too. I will. I'm gonna <laughs> read
1: it and I'm gonna be very disappointed in the movie, like Kim is. Uh, <laughs> but if you're going to write a spoilers about the movie it. And the book, probably. If you're going to write a book based on a space alien that turns into a clown once it crash lands on Earth in the middle of the 1600s, you're going to have to find a good sense of realism to make that book actually scary. And I think that that's what's probably going to be impressive about it when I read it, is like the amounts of grounded realism that's also in it with the cosmic turtles that I know of and the alien (laughs) space-like clowns. So it's just funny to, like, say that all of that is one sentence, right? (laughs) Right, right. Um, Especially knowing that he also wrote this book called Misery, which, like, this is just dealing with addiction and, like, isolation and, like, manipulation and, like, being... It really... You know what's really interesting? This makes me think 100% of an abusive relationship.
0: It is absolutely an encapsulation of an abusive relationship. And it's
1: really interesting, too, because it's, like, you know, by the time, like... At the end of any bad relationship like that, there's a moment where you're like, is it worth it for me to just suck it up? Will that be easier? Would that just be better for me at the at the long run? And, like, there gets to be a point where Paul is actively, like, thinking about it. He's just like, I think this might just be my life. I don't know. I thought that was really right. interesting. Right,
0: absolutely. And that, you know, it, it's... Who's addicted to who in this story? Who's addicted to what, mm-hmm. you know... Obviously, Paul is addicted to the painkillers. Because how he ended up there is he's crushed. his From his waist down, he was in an accident. He is crushed.
1: So I think we so find she's out feeding this him. Part, so I don't think that that's too much of a spoiler. We can tell, like... Because you definitely find out... Oh, yeah, we definitely do. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, during absolutely. this uh, section of the book, we find out that... Paul had been writing his novel called Fast Cars in Boulder and I mean, he's the type of writer who likes to sequester himself and he's like if I got a headache I can't write I gotta lay down for 45 minutes and do some coke you know he's, the, he's a good writer and so he's sequestered he finally finishes his book and he's super excited so he starts to just go and drive off and he gets a couple bottles of Dom and he's drinking the bottles of Dom and he gets in a major car accident and of course the only person that happens to come along is his number one fan Annie Wilkes and she rescues him from the car brings him back to her house and she starts to doctor him up she uh, gives him pain pills she gives him uh, she has a little bit of morphine she says she splints his legs and she
0: hooks him up to an iv an because IV he's feed him. in a coma and so we know from the sure. very instant from the very instant the book starts you already know that she is not quite right in the head because what sane person doesn't call an ambulance just pulls somebody out of their car and takes them to her home to take care of him instead of calling an ambulance because whoa
1: sorry go ahead the last this is the last sentence of chapter three and it just kind of threw me it would be yet a while before his number one fan brought him the old clacking royal with the grinning gapped mouth and the ducky daddles voice But Paul understood long before then that he was in a hell of a jam. So that's so much foreshadowing that the first time I read through that, it didn't even like cross my mind what that meant. But now it's like, it's literally like here's something that like is fun for me, right? You know, you have Chekhov's gun. Chekhov's gun is like in a play, if you introduce a Mm -hmm. gun in the first act, it has to be used in the second act. Right. Like just like tension release for an audience. That typewriter. If you introduce Absolutely. a typewriter in the first act, it has to be used, in, to the be second used act. in the second act. And I think like even like at some point in like one of the little interstitiaries, Paul's just like, I could just use this typewriter and throw it at her. And I just hope like, you know, he gets to that point. Yeah. Foreshadowing. Ah, oh my gosh. I think that that's like what's fun about this too, is as we break it down more, I get more and more like, oh my God, that was impressive.
0: For this book. As I spent the last week rereading this book, it was with this new kind of excitement because i was going to get to sit here with otto and listen to his first impressions of this book that is so familiar to me that i've read over and over again which is the entire premise of this experience Mm -hmm. and it's so exciting to me
1: I'm really excited about that, too. Like, it is much more enjoyable for me to have, like, a goal, like, talking about a book, too. Because right. it's, like, so long in my life, I've just read things, so I was like, I liked this story. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, ah, I'm going to read it with, like, a critical eye, too, so that way I can talk about it. I was going to say, as I'm rereading through, like, the first couple of chapters and just, like, eyeing through them and scanning through mm-hmm. other things to chat about, it's interesting because very – the beginning of this book – feels like Paul Sheldon telling someone what happened to him. Right. And him making like little jokes and little allusions to like, oh you think like this is what oh I bet this might happen later or like little things like that. But I know, having just finished I know that once he gets into the end of it, it's not like that at all anymore. Right. Like it is very like first experience, like uh I'm terrified, like this is what's happening.
0: But I, I think that the beginning of this is kind of a defence mechanism for him.
1: I think he's trying for the to... For the character. Yeah, yeah. For
0: Paul the character. I believe that this first part where he's making these kind of weird sort of dark jokes and and trying to compare her to an African idol um, out of she or King Solomon's minds. Um, he's... I feel like it's a defense mechanism for him because... He may be, he thinks he may be insane because things are just really not good. No. This This is, I feel like that he's using the, the humor and these references as kind of a self-preservation.
1: I definitely think there's, a, he has a good sense of self-preservation throughout this. Like, throughout the entire thing, he's like, if I do that, she'll get mad. Or if I do that, this could happen. So there's right. this constant, like, revolving, like, door of insecure self-preservation right like these things
0: of you know i can i can do this because i am capable of doing this but well you know i'm isolated she's the only person that knows i'm here if i do this what are the consequences of that and you know he's 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 very he's
1: a very he's a real he's a writer he's a writer he's not just thinking about like i could do this he's thinking about if i do this 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 and this happens or this 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 and this happens or this this this, is this happens right and i think that's just like the tale the telltale signs of a writer is someone that analyzes and sees all of the different situations that a story could go
0: absolutely absolutely
1: Um, so then we get into after so this is like we've been through the first like five six chapters you know like fun little things about annie you're learning little things about him you find out that she has a farm the Roydmans are uh, the closest people, and they're about, like, what, half a mile, almost a mile away, mm-hmm. she says. You find out that she has livestock. She has a couple of pigs, cows, and chickens. Um, she has a big farm that she takes care of by herself. You find out she's a widow. Um, I think she says...
0: It, she's not a widow. She's divorced.
1: Oh, she's, she says she's a widow, though. She
0: says she's a widow. Yeah, oh, that's right. That's what oh, she spoilers. says. spoilers. Sorry. But, yeah.
1: <laughs> and that's the thing, too, is it's like, I think, though, I think she wanted to be a widow. Cause I think it's a you get a lot more sympathy when you're a widow Absolute. over a divorcee.
0: Absolutely, if she would have
1: ended up being a widow, it would have been like, "Oh, your doctor husband died. I'm so sorry." Honey. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. Um, she also talks about how her mom used to live here with her at one point too. Yeah. So I just think that like she's a little bit of a liar for attention.
0: Yeah, like, absolutely. I, and she definitely
1: lies for attention to Paul, but I think that like she also I think that every time she goes into town. I think she comes back and it really strikes me in the moment when she's talking about the typewriter the first time I think she's over exaggerating how much everybody hates her or she's playing into her own insecurities because I know how depressed she is of like I'm pretty sure everyone hates me and it's like there's no other option that it couldn't be that they hate me it couldn't possibly be that I smelled literally like pig poop and just absolutely awful and I was really mean to her while I was buying this typewriter there's no way it could have been me she just doesn't like me
0: absolutely
1: and so like it makes me think that but I was trying to get into chapter 6 which is chapter 6 in the first part of this book is some of the most impressive pieces of writing I've ever read before this whole chapter is separated with double slash with double hyphens and it is the story of Annie telling Paul what she did to save him Mm -hmm. while simultaneously in the same chapter and in the same moments Paul is remembering what happened on his end and then, literally, a chapter later, he's talking about how good Fast Cars is because he does that exact same technique in it. Yep. So it's really fun to me because it's like Stephen King is proud of this chapter.
0: Absolutely. And he so is. he went
1: as far as in like three chapters later to talk about how proud he was of that chapter by using it as another vehicle. I think it's really fun too that, like, they really like. The Suey pig pig pig.
0: Oh yeah. Just like the
1: her pig calls and stuff, like and like the little things that she does. Like the little things that she does outside of the room to add to her character and her personality are really well written in this.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's really
1: cool because it's like they always come in the middle of his train of thought. Like a lot of like what Stephen King does in this one is like a lot of stream of consciousness writing where he just embodies the character and he just lets the character run free with his thoughts and he just goes and goes and goes and goes. But what's really fun about that is he's very aware, though, that he's in this terrifying situation, this very stressful, tense situation. So any, like, abnormal noise or anything that pops out at him, you immediately hear it in the stream of consciousness, because that's how much it interrupts Paul's thoughts.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's really... I think you're right. I I mean, it's... Yeah. Um...
1: And I think that's really telling, though, too, is it's because, like, even in the... Deepest thoughts that we have Paul in when he's really like analyzing, like how to save himself or how to like do something with the book, like uh, Misery Returns when he starts writing the next book. Like all of these things, no matter what, any outside noise bothers him until there's like two points where it doesn't. But it's because he has such a good sense of escapism at those points that he's able to actually not have to worry.
0: And again, I'm going to come back to I think that that's a self preservation especially like so hyper aware of how it could be that he's hyper aware even through all the drug haze he's hyper aware of her presence of where she is and what she's doing he talks about hearing her go up the steps to her bedroom he hears about You know, when she flushes the toilet and when she's doing the dishes and when she's watching TV, he knows where she is and what she's doing because he has to be aware. I also am curious, at the end of Chapter 11 in the first section, he talks about, he's like in the courtroom in Denver. He could see Annie on the stand, not wearing jeans, but a rusty purple-black dress with an awful hat
1: Is he there?
0: Was he there?
1: Or did he see a picture?
0: Did he see a picture? This was I mean You have also to remember though, That this was in 19 He wrote this in 84 and 85 And 86 And The 24 hour news cycle Was there But it's not like it is it now Twitter It was Twitter Reddit and not, and Facebook Right So How does Paul know this? Where I mean, where did he pick this information? Because it's from? not something
1: that Annie had told us at that point, or right. anything that we had learned from Annie. So at this point, it just really seems like this random, superfluous image that he has there. Right. But we find but out where later does on, that image
0: come from? Yeah,
1: that's the scary part. That honestly, like the terrifying part too, because it makes me feel like we know later on that she keeps the newspapers of things.
0: Absolutely, her scrapbook.
1: It would make sense to me that her crowning moment is that trial because she's free and happy not happy but she's free right it would make sense to me that she would have a newspaper clipping of that but hung up on her wall and maybe in his unconsciousness he wasn't entirely
0: unconscious
1: yeah him. and he he saw it it. and it just stuck in his head right and i think that like
0: or i mean there is the outside chance that that it could be the 24-hour news cycle, or that he was in Boulder, where he goes to finish all his books, Mm -hmm. while that was going on. So I, I really think that subconsciously, in the way deep part of his brain, he knows who she is from the beginning. I or at least has knew, an inkling of who I, she I'm, is. I'm,
1: I think it's 100% certain that he did. Because he says, like, I know who you are in the, like, second chapter because of all the letters she's written him. Mm-hmm. So it's like she, he at least know, recognizes her name. So I wondered then if after he recognized her name maybe he was in Boulder finishing a book and he saw like a newspaper thing that was like Annie Wilkes but the Dragon Lady and he was just like is that the woman I think it is and like
0: Well and they they have the picture of her in the paper mm-hmm. reading his
1: book reading his book even so oh man I bet you that's probably like that image for him is just knowing like of her and her as man that would be terrifying if he actually did have any right? idea of, of who like, who she was. she was.
0: So, you know, I, I feel like that that contributes to the underlying terror throughout
1: And if he did know this who she experience. was before this experience, she probably just kind of, he probably didn't think of her as sociopathic as she ends up revealing herself to be. He probably just thought of her as, like, an older lady who was not getting the fair end of the stick. But, Maybe he was showed up to support her even at his, the court case.
0: you know, it, it that's never made clear. No, it
1: isn't. It's never even talked um, about it's
0: it, it it's never even this little thing is never even really. It's never clarified. But
1: you know that, like, he left it in there on purpose.
0: Absolutely. Because he talks later on
1: about how misery, he has this whole lexicon of for misery that is literally just per people, places, and, like, where they're at in their lives and, like, what they're doing. So um, it makes me realize that, like, okay, that is actually a tactic that Stephen King uses. So he probably has a notebook just for misery about, like, where Paul was, what he was doing, where Annie was, like, their whole lives and everything. And there is that connection there. He tells us it from Paul's point of view, but then never clarifies it in any way. So it's just like that sense. It's that sense of the unknown. That's even scarier than anything else, too, is just not knowing.
0: And I think that that is what makes this book so intensely frightening. Oh, this is it's, one of the
1: scariest books I've ever read before. Especially, like, when... And this is, like... This is just, like, spoiler, like, for the very end. The moment that it says there was nobody in that room, I was like, oh, Because then it's just, like, literally, it's only, like, eight pages left in the novel. So it's like, okay what is going to happen and then it's like eight pages and the next one is him having a hallucination of her yeah exactly the next one is her him having a hallucination of her like just showing up with an axe yes and then like, and, like I have goosebumps I do too I, like, I literally have goosebumps because it was really really good
0: and and it gives me goosebumps every time I read it because it's just I knew I know what's coming I know what's coming. I know what's going to happen. I've read it before. But I get to the I get to certain segments of this book and I can't stop because I have to know what comes next, even though I know what's coming next because I have to read it again, because I have to feel it again. I have to experience again. We this is something we talked about Otto when we got to that yeah. section with the when she comes back after being gone In several days for a
1: long time. Yes. And she's and like, we, I've known everything.
0: I've known everything. It's terrifying. It like, is.
1: Straight up.
0: It is. It. It's just this uh, compulsion. It's funny and, and how I, like
1: Annie is so much scarier when she's calm too.
0: Yes. Because it's like
1: when she's calm, you truly cannot expect what she's going to do. But when she's anger, angry, you know that she's going to take it out on Paul. But when she's calm, you don't know if she's trying to play some long con to get something out of it, or if she's really calm because she's so mad at this point that she's like, I know exactly what I'm going to do, mm-hmm. and it's going to make me feel better. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Oof. Some good parts. Like That's the thing, too. I think like one of the best things about this novel is, like you know we're only talking about the first part of it today, and we keep jumping into the second part, and I think it's because the second part is just, The first part only exists for that second part to be so good. It's and I wouldn't care about how good it is from the moment that like he starts working on Misery Returns to the end, if the first part wasn't so well written. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I didn't have a good exposition written from a point of view where I cared about Paul enough to like. Right.
0: You have a connection mm -hmm. to the characters immediately oh, and like
1: even with Annie like there's I like I remember distinctly I texted you at one point and I was like I feel so bad for Annie.
0: Yeah. And then like, and then, like literally like 20 six minutes six later, pages later you're I was like, like never, never mind.
1: mind. <laughs> but you know there is a point there where like I really related with Annie especially like I think it's in this part
0: it, it is. is in this part. It is in this it's part. It's either in
1: this part or it's the very beginning of the next episode so I'll talk about it regardless. But he goes down he sneaks out of his room at one point and uh it's just a mess. And she's been binge eating. She's been binge crying. She's been, like, yeah. binge not wa- washing herself. She's just been, you know, every single classic thing that is a symptom or, like, a result of depression is everywhere. And it's, like, painfully obvious how, like, miserable and depressed this and anxious this woman is. But...
0: Yeah, so you feel really sorry for really
1: awful, and like for a really, few pages <laughs> for a few pages, and then like some other stuff's revealed that we'll talk about next episode. That is like, oh, never mind. Yeah, but it really. Then I think I even texted you this in that moment. It made me feel like the real villain of this story is the American health system. From-
0: when he realizes that she hasn't finished his most recent misery book,
1: that is yeah, Because he knows it's
0: going to be bad. He knows. he knows. He knows. He oh. knows so when he when he becomes aware that his most recent copy or his most recent misery book she hasn't finished it yet because she's thrifty and only buys them in paperback so he has this horrible sense of oh my god because he foreboding. knows he knows how the book ends, and so he knows that she's going to I think that's in this first chapter, so we tell is. them too. So it I'll, absolutely is.
1: Paul has this series and it's like a long standing series he's been writing for quite a while called Misery. And Misery is the main character of this series. It's a woman, and it's a terrible name for a person also. Mm-hmm. Just throwing that out there, Steve. Like I get that it like, you know, the colloquialism and illusion of the book and then the book and the book in the book is also the title of the book. Like, I get that. But, like, is Misery short for something? Is her name, like, Missouri? And they call her Misery? Probably not, because it's 1600s. But regardless, Paul works on this Misery series just so he can have money. So he's able to work on his uh, more artistic novels. The, yeah. like, you know, more ambitious novels, I think. Is the more passion would, novels. Passion-based novels. The I think that's how he would say more passion novels. It. So mm-hmm. his plan in the be- very beginning of this is and he's already put out this book it's uh i don't think i think it's called misery's end or something like that um but essentially he kills off the main character at the end of the novel and the only reason annie wilkes is his number one fan is because of this novel series i think like it doesn't say this specifically but i think we can assume that annie wilkes has never read any of his other work and I feel like it's probably very representative of like real authors, but I feel like romance novels are probably not like the real passion for a lot of authors. Like, there's probably some. Like, I've read Sherilyn Kenyon. I don't know if you know. I've uh, read any of her novels. She writes like uh, vampire romance, but she also writes like young adult romance, oh. which is really it's really interesting because they're usually supernaturally based. But she's very passionate about romance,
0: right. and like,
1: but I feel like. You know, you get like your James Pattersons who have written a couple of romance novels, and you're like, ah, I don't feel like James Patterson cares that much about romance novels for some reason.
0: So when she comes in and absolutely loses her mind
1: when she finds out. And, when like, she throws, finds out. Oh, oh my I'm literally gosh! On that.
0: Yeah, it's and you know.
1: She can't be dead. Dead! Annie Wilkes shrieked at him. Yeah. Her hands snapped open and hooked close in a faster and faster rhythm. Misery Chastain cannot be dead. And then he just is like, I didn't kill her. And I think it's really interesting too how he talks about like how stories come out of a writer because he's like you know like I have a general idea and I know what I want to do but you know halfway through it like characters change their minds like I changed my minds like you know especially like once you're actively like thinking as someone else like you know right, they're right. not going to make the same actions as you think they will
0: right you you know you may have an outline in a place of where you think it's going to happen but as the story starts unfolding out of your oh this is brain. Too. Mm-hmm. It, it just isn't always exactly how you pictured it yep. and
1: um i just think it's important too that like um in chapter 13 we have the first time that annie calls him a dirty birdie
0: mm-hmm. and
1: i just think like it seems really innocuous at first but then like i feel like paul at the end of this novel will have so much ptsd that if anyone ever called him a dirty birdie again, it would cause an immediate breakdown.
0: I, yes, you know what I mean? Absolutely, and
1: it's just funny that, like, and you know, she goes on to talk about how, like, she's such a good moral person, she doesn't swear and like she believes in God and goes to church and all this stuff, but then she's also okay to do the things that she does,
0: right? What kind of deranged person doesn't get somebody help,
1: thinks not only doesn't get somebody helps, but thinks that they are. Are not only better than going to a hospital, but that they should be thankful that they didn't take them to a hospital. Right? You should be thankful that I didn't take you to a professional care facility because I was here to take care of you. Right. That's a, that is a mindset that's like impressive to say the least. Yeah. And then we have the first time that Annie leaves him alone. Yes. and she just leaves and then he immediately and the yes. only thing that it says the next in it chapter doesn't 14, matter 51 a place hours. i
0: know if i stay here i'll do something unwise and i need to think goodbye paul